There are approximately 1.4 million transgender adults in the United States. Until recently, most insurers didn't cover services or procedures related to gender transition, and they often refused to insure transgender people at all. But the landscape has begun to shift. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Kellen Baker, a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Mr. Baker has written a perspective article about the expansion of transgender-inclusive coverage and what the future may hold. Mr. Baker, you write in your article that until several years ago, few insurers covered transition-related services. When did physicians start to recognize that gender dysphoria is a medical condition that warrants treatment? The history of gender dysphoria in the United States actually goes back much further than people think. The first physicians to really start providing transition-related care to transgender people actually started working in the states in the 1960s and 1970s. So there was actually a movement of a number of university gender centers, as they called them then, that opened to provide transition-related care, and it was becoming more accepted until the Medicare program in the early 1980s instituted an exclusion, which is really where we saw the beginning of the history of the last 30 years, which, as you mentioned, was frequently a time when insurance coverage was not available for transgender people, and it's something that's only recently begun to shift. In fact, decisions by the Department of Health and Human Services only last year expanded Medicare and Medicaid coverage for care related to gender transition. Are there concerns that DHHS could change course now that there's a new administration? There are actually a number of threads that are coming together when you look at the availability of transition-related care and coverage. And one is definitely the Department of Health and Human Services, as you mentioned, CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, in 2014 actually lifted the exclusion that had been instituted in the early 1980s and made it possible for Medicare to recognize the medical necessity of surgeries related to gender transition. And that decision was made by an independent board of appeals within the department, and it really reflects the growing understanding that transgender exclusions are out of step with current medical science and also really are not in the best interests of transgender people and their health. And then subsequent to the Medicare decision, as you mentioned last year, the Office for Civil Rights at the Department of Health and Human Services issued a regulation that clarifies some of the particulars of a provision in the Affordable Care Act that prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex, which according to this regulation includes gender identity. So we have seen increasing awareness among entities that are regulated by CMS, such as Medicaid, under this regulation, recognizing that transgender exclusions are in violation of the Affordable Care Act. But the federal piece is only one aspect of these sort of several threads that I was talking about coming together now. We actually saw the beginning of a lot of these changes happening among employers. So large employers who self-insure are able to more or less dictate the contents of the coverage that they want to offer to their employees. And beginning about five or six years ago, we saw a big jump in the number of employers who were saying, you know what, in order to live out the commitments that we have in our gender identity non-discrimination or other equal employment opportunity clauses, we're going to make sure that our plans do not have transgender-specific exclusions. So there's the federal piece, but there's also the employer piece and actually a state piece as well that involves state regulators and state-regulated private plans. So it's quite a complex landscape, but really what we see is this overall trend toward recognizing that transgender exclusions are discriminatory and violate federal and state laws. But part of that landscape has been the number of legal challenges to increased protection for transgender people. 
How do you expect the courts to ultimately come down in those cases? And what's been the effect of that ongoing uncertainty on the community? It's really unfortunate because we see transgender people and transgender issues being used as something of a political football in the current highly polarized, highly partisan era of American politics. We're seeing transgender people trapped in the middle when really all they want to do is go to the bathroom in peace and be able to get health insurance coverage that provides them with financial security and gives them access to the care that they need. So I think it's very unfortunate that so much has, in the increasing visibility of transgender people, that it has become something of this political football where you see people's experiences and people's humanity really not being recognized in pursuit of some political goal. When it comes to what the courts are saying, there is a preliminary injunction that was placed by a federal judge in Texas on the Section 1557 regulation at the end of last year. And what that injunction says is questions the authority of the Department of Health and Human Services to have included gender identity, transgender people and their concerns, in the Section 1557 regulation. And that lawsuit is ongoing. So nobody really knows what's going to happen next since the original defendant in the lawsuit was the Department of Health and Human Services under the Obama administration. Now that the Department of Health and Human Services is headed by a Trump appointee, it's very unclear what the next steps in that litigation will be. But I do think we see an increasing trend in the courts towards recognizing that transgender people deserve fundamental protections as they go about the activities of daily life. And I think one of the clearest examples is the Gavin Grimm case out of Virginia, looking at the right of school districts or the ability of school districts to protect transgender students. And that is going back to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, which has previously ruled in Gavin Grimm's favor. It's a very uncertain landscape right now, which I think is really unfortunately true for a lot of important things in this country, for example, health reform in general. But ultimately, I think we're moving in a direction that's recognizing that transgender people, like anybody else, really just want to live their lives and have access to the health care and other services that they need. You write in your article that covering transition-related services appears to be cost-effective. What are the costs associated with not providing transgender-inclusive coverage? The costs of not providing transgender-inclusive coverage are huge, both in terms of financial costs and in terms of human costs. In terms of human costs, what you're really looking at is people who are not able to recognize themselves in the mirror. They're not able to get the health care that they need that enables them to live as who they truly are. And what we know from the history of health disparities research is that imposes high costs on your health. It hurts your mental health, it hurts your physical health, and it hurts your social health, your ability to participate in your community and to live the life that you should be able to live in safety and with dignity. So the human costs of telling transgender people that they cannot have access to medically necessary healthcare services that enable them to be who they truly are is very high. And in terms of the financial costs, any time you have a condition that is not treated early, the costs of treating it later become more and more expensive. The clearest example, I would say, is something like cancer, where if you catch it early, you can actually intervene and make the prognosis better and probably, in most cases, make the costs lower because you are arresting the condition before it becomes something that is really seriously damaging the person's health. 
But when you put up barriers to health care and you make it harder for people to get the health care that they need in a timely manner, that just means that things get exacerbated, conditions get compounded, and you ultimately end up with higher costs because you were not able or willing to help people at a very early stage that could have avoided a lot of the negative consequences later. As more insurers cover care related to gender transition, is there any evidence that the number of people undergoing hormone therapy, reconstructive surgery has increased? There's definitely not enough data collection in the United States on the transgender population. We really are working at this point with data from private surveys, such as the Gallup poll, which is where we got the number that you cited of about 1.4 million transgender people, or the U.S. Transgender Survey, which is a large survey with about 28,000 respondents that was fielded by the National Center for Transgender Equality. And the results were just released late last year and showed that there are a lot of transgender people who are still encountering these barriers to getting health insurance coverage and getting health care. So we don't have a good sense yet, and we won't really have a good sense until we as a country do I would say, a better job of collecting basic demographic data on the transgender population to know exactly what effect these changes are having on the health and well-being of transgender individuals and on their access to healthcare services. Finally, what can individual physicians do to ensure equitable and comprehensive care for their transgender patients? That's a really great question because we know, you know, speaking of health insurance coverage, it's a wonderful thing to have, but it's not a thing in and of itself that people necessarily are, are needing or wanting. What they need is access to the healthcare services that so many people in the United States cannot afford without having health insurance coverage. So really, when we're talking about the changes that are happening in health insurance coverage, the trend that is much more important for transgender people is actually the question of access to care, the ability to see a physician and to see a physician or another clinician who is able and willing to work with them. There are a number of resources out there. The World Professional Association for Transgender Health maintains the standards of care, which provide an overview of the different types of healthcare services that may be medically necessary as part of gender transition. The Center of Excellence for Transgender Health at the University of California at San Francisco also has a primary care protocol that outlines in significant detail all of the different aspects of transgender care that clinicians should be aware of. And really, it's something that isn't rocket science. That's a phrase that gets overused, but in this case, it really is true. It's not very difficult to provide appropriate, respectful care to transgender people because for the most part, the care transgender people need is no different from cisgender or non-transgender people. So it really is a question of clinicians becoming familiar with the needs of transgender patients and looking for opportunities within their own scope of practice to provide compassionate, knowledgeable care to transgender individuals. Thank you, Mr. Baker.